one whom you have diminished, this one whom you have ridiculed, the one whom you have mocked, the one whom you see nothing good in. This Jesus, God has attested to. Literally, this is, this Jesus of Nazareth is the one who is certified by God. This derided individual is the one who is certified, who is confirmed, who is demonstrated to be genuine by God himself. You see him as one who is low from backwoods Nazareth. God sees him as his holy Messiah. He is the one that God has approved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you that is confirmed, that is certified to you by God. How did God certify or put forth Jesus as that which is authentic? By mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. God certified or attested to him to be genuine by doing mighty works, wonders, and signs. I want you to understand that the signs and the wonders that Jesus did um, were primarily to demonstrate that he was from God. Miracles were never done as a sideshow. They were never done to simply amaze the crowds. We do see a few places where Jesus, it says that Jesus had compassion on an individual and he did a miracle. He healed that person. Primarily, the signs that were done by Jesus were to confirm his message. Let me um, give you a couple of examples. First of all, Jesus feeds 5,000, and then what does he say? I'm the bread of life. Jesus preaches, I am the light of the world. And then what does he do? He heals a blind man. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then what does he say? I'm the resurrection and the life. Miracles and, and, and Jesus making identi identifying who he was and is, and the miracles simply confirm what Jesus is saying. Let me give you... Um, show you from the book of Matthew. Mark, we can also see the same flow in, in the Gospel of Mark, but Matthew is very clear. Because Jesus goes up on a mountain and he begins to preach to the crowds and there's a whole bunch of different people. It's a melting pot of, of people from various backgrounds. Jew and Gentile and, and people from all walks of life, Pharisees and Sadducees. And he gets up on the mountain and he preaches perhaps the greatest sermon ever. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he preaches with authority. In fact, at the very end of the sermon, that's what the people said. They said, this one preaches with authority. He doesn't preach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He preaches as one having authority. I want you to understand when they say he preaches with authority, it's not that he preached boldly, it's, which he did, but that's not what they're talking about. It's not that he spoke loud, that he spoke as one having authority. A good example is this. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you. What kind of statement is that? And he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Who said that? But I say to you, that's an authoritative statement. He's saying, I have authority to, to not only uphold God's word, but to clarify God's word. I have that authority. He comes to him and he's saying, listen, you guys, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a crazy statement because the scribes and the Pharisees were seen as righteous. And Jesus says, you need to have your righteousness be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And people say, that's not going to happen. And then he begins to describe to them how impossible God's standard is. Things like, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. And then, let me teach you how to pray. Our Father, 
That's unheard of. Go through the Old Testament and find out how many times people referred to God as my Father. And Jesus said, this is how you're going to pray. Pray to God like this, our Father. Who has the authority to make that statement? So he preaches with authority, and he makes these incredible statements, things like this. Don't be anxious for anything. But rather, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. That's an incredibly authoritative statement. Don't worry about what you're going to put on. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. God knows what you need. Now seek the kingdom first, and those things will be taken care of. And the people were amazed. Well, here's the thing. Anybody can make those kinds of statements. Anybody can get behind a pulpit or stand up on a mountain and say, you've heard it said, God said this, but I say to you. A lot of people can say those things. Very few can back them up. And this is what Jesus does. He goes and he preaches this a sermon where he demonstrates or proclaims his authority. And then look what follows in the book of Matthew. First thing that he does is he heals a man filled with leprosy. Then he heals a centurion's servant from a distance. In other words, I am not only the Lord of physical healing, I am also the Lord of time and space. I don't even need to be present to heal a person. I am not limited by the distance. Space does not, or not, is not a boundary to me. Then he calms the storm. In other words, I have authority over nature. Then he casts out demons. I have authority over hell. Then he forgives sins. In other words, I have the authority to forgive sins. And then he raises the dead. I have authority over life and death. Do you see what he's done? He preaches, I have all authority. And then he goes and he demonstrates that I have authority over sickness and health. I have authority over time and space. I am the Lord of nature. I am the Lord of the underworld. I am the Lord who forgives sins. And I am the Lord over life and death. I, there is nowhere on this, in this universe where I am not Lord. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, God put forth as genuine through signs and wonders and miracles. These confirm who he is. He is the real deal, the genuine product. He is the Lord of all. But here's the amazing thing. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He didn't do it in secret. He didn't do it off somewhere Well, we heard a story about it. No, he did it in your midst. And here's the amazing thing. As you yourselves know, I've maintained since many years ago when we taught through the Gospel of John, this was the thing that stood out to me so, so clearly. You knew. Men of Israel, you knew. You knew exactly who Jesus was. For a long time, I would teach, well, you know what, they might have been ignorant about who Jesus was. The Pharisees knew exactly who Jesus was. There was no doubt in their mind. They knew that he was the Messiah, Son of God, Lord of all, and they still killed him. We know this. When he went to Nicodemus, what did Nic- or when Nicodemus came to him, we know that you're from God because nobody can do the things you do unless God is with him. We know who you are. We know exactly who you are. Men of Israel, Jesus, whom you have derided, God has put forth as Lord and Messiah, and you knew it. There was no doubt. It was in your midst. There was no doubt who he was. You knew it. I think people would say, well, then why would they put Jesus to death if they knew? I want you to understand the darkness of sin. Their problem is not lack of information. Their problem is unbelief. And so when we share the gospel with people, I don't care how clear you are. You can present the clearest gospel message. Most people's problem is not they don't understand or lack of information. The problem is unbelief. 
We love John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Keep going and we're going to see that light came into the world but the darkness, men love darkness. Light's in the world. Well, why don't they go to the light? Because we love darkness. Men of Israel, this Jesus God put forth. You knew exactly who he was and you killed him anyways. Why? Because men love the darkness. I think this goes to our depravity. I think this goes, I mean, you can have the Lord of glory in your midst and he can raise the dead and you will still say, kill him, kill the man. This is how hard the unregenerate heart is. You knew. So let me just sum up these first few statements. Men of Israel, the one you mock, the one you deride is the one that God put forth as Messiah. And that is supported by overwhelming evidence. There is no doubt. Let me be clear about something. Even though Peter is saying, you knew. The purpose of Peter's sermon is not to shame. It is to bring repentance. The purpose of Peter's sermon is not to shame the men of Israel, but to bring them to repentance. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. The purpose is not to shame, but to bring men to repentance. Think about that. Men of Israel, you who put Jesus to death, you who 50 days ago crucified the Lord of glory, are now being called to repentance by the same Lord of glory. That is, the very ones who killed the Lord are now being called to follow the Lord. This is amazing grace. I don't know, movies today, we go to action-type movies, and one of the common themes is somebody's loved one gets killed by some horribly terrible person, and they spend the rest of their life hunting down that horrible, terrible person and making sure they suffer a horrible and terrible demise. And we cheer. Yeah, vengeance, he got him. The gospel story is this, that a loved one was killed by horrible, terrible people. And the father comes back and says, let me love you, repent and turn from your sins, and let me welcome you into my family. That's the gospel message. Men of Israel, I'm telling you this not to shame you. I am telling you this, that even though you are murderers and the blood of Christ is on your hands, there is an offer of peace from our Heavenly Father calling you back into his presence. That's an amazing story. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, this Jesus, which Jesus? The one that you put to death, the one that you knew was from God. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's a couple issues we should consider as we proceed forward. One question that people might have at this point is, if Jesus is Lord, as you say, and God attested him and certified him and declared him genuine, if Jesus is Lord, then why was he a victim of such a horrible crime? Or why didn't he exercise his authority as king? The answer is that he was no victim. The cross was God's plan. See, you thought you were getting rid of this usurper. You thought you were getting rid of this Jesus. What was actually happening was that you were actually fulfilling God's eternal purposes. He was no victim. It was God's plan. This Jesus delivered up. In other words, this Jesus was delivered up not, was not the result of man's plotting or scheming. He was delivered up by God's eternal will. Delivered up according to the definite plan. In other words, what you guys did, what you did was previously determined by God. It was God's decree that Jesus, his son, would die on a cross 
at Passover when the sacrificial lambs were slain as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Do not think for a moment that you did that all on your own. This was the determined plan of God. This Jesus delivered up by the, according to the definite plan of God. When did this plan take place? I have to ask, when did it take place? Did it take place at Calvary? God the Father is like, oh my goodness, my son's getting crucified. They're really going through with it. I thought that maybe they would back off or do something. And Second Timothy 1.9 tells us this, that Christ who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our good works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. I want you to turn over just maybe a page or maybe not even a page to Acts chapter 4. We're going to see this theme running throughout the book of Acts. Chapter 4, verses 25 through 28 is an amazing passage of text. It is. Um, I'll just read it. Let me go back to 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel. Here's what Peter is saying. There were people, both Jew and Gentile, gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Why do the Gentiles rage and people plot a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? Both Jew and Gentile raised up according to the predestined plan of God. This Jesus, you crucified, delivered up according to the definite plan, the definite plan of God, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Let me dispel some myths and misunderstandings about this term foreknowledge. Let me tell you what it is not, but it is popularly defined this way. Foreknowledge is not God looking down through the corridors of time and seeing what man will do and then act accordingly. It is not God in eternity looking down through the corridors of time and seeing some, what man is going to do and then make his decision based on what man is going to do. We often hear this in terms of election, that God saw that I would choose him and on the basis of me receiving the gospel, he chose me or elected me. There are a number of problems with this view and this is why we reject it. It sounds nice and it kind of puts, makes it seem like God is less arbitrary, but it's just not found in scripture. In other words, God does not look down through history and say, well, this is what man's going to do, and because this is what man's going to do, then I'm going to form a plan based on what man is going to do. First of all, it makes God sovereign. This is why we would reject it. It would make God, or it would make man in control, and God simply reacting to what man does. That is not found anywhere in the Bible. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Second, it means that God learns something. God has to look down through the corridors of, of time and see what you're going to do. In other words, he doesn't know what you're going to do first. God learns something. This also needs to be rejected. And finally, it's just never used that way in the Bible, ever. And a great example is 1 Peter 1.20. Let's try to apply that definition to 1 Peter 1.20 because when we do, we're going to end up with heresy. So then we can just reject it. So 1 Peter 1.20. Speaking of Jesus... He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last days for your sake. So, Jesus, if we apply that definition, that God looks down through the corridors of history and 
and sees what a person is going to do and on the basis of what that person does makes his plan. If we apply it here, we end up with Jesus, God looking down to the corridors of history of time and seeing that Jesus would be the Lamb of God without blemish and on that basis ascribes to Jesus the title of Messiah. No, Jesus has always been Messiah, always been Lord, always been the Son of God, always been the the plan of God for Jesus to die for our sins has always been the plan, always. God didn't create the world and then look down through, or even before the world began, look down through the corridors of time and say, oh, Jesus will be obedient, I'll choose Jesus. That's outright untruth, unorthodox, not in the Bible. Romans 11.2, we also see the same, the same idea. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? God has not rejected his people. Who's he talking about? Well, if you've been in our Roman study, you know that he's talking about Israel, his people. Whom he what? Whom he foreknew. Are you saying that God looked down through the corridors of time and saw a, a people that he found worthy, I guess, and chose them based on, based on some, something that they did? That has nothing to do with it. In fact, God says, I chose you, not because you were the most or the greatest or the most powerful or anything that, like that. I chose you. I chose you. Here's the main point. It's easy to get wrapped up in, in this, but we need to work our way through this very clear but challenging passage of text that God, that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But the main point here is that Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is not a victim of man's sin. This was God's plan. Men of Israel, God put forth Jesus and certified him. He was not a victim of your plans or your schemes. This was always the plan of God. Well, that sounds great until you get to the next part, which makes everything really hard. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was not a victim. He was put forth. It was always the plan of God. But you killed him. You crucified him. You used lawless men to do your wicked deeds. In other words, God's plan, God's eternal plan, actually includes the, acts, the sinful acts of men. Genesis 50-20, as some people have called it the gospel in the Old Testament. You remember that one? Joseph is with his brothers. And what does he... They, they all think that Joseph is going to, like now that... Jacob is dead. They all think that, oh, oh no, our dad's dead. He's going to kill us. Joseph is going to kill us or imprison us. And he said, no, what you did, you meant for evil, but God meant for good to save a people alive. You are responsible for your sin, but understand this. God used the acts of sinful men to bring about salvation for a whole people. He used your sin. Your sinful acts do not thwart God's plan. In fact, they fulfill God's plan. And of course, the best example is the cross. Sinful acts of men actually fulfill God's purposes. We know that God is not the author of sin. Man is responsible for his sin. But a couple things we should think about. First of all, I want you to understand that your sinful acts are not beyond the grace of God. Here's a group of people who've murdered Christ. And God is saying, God is bringing the gospel back to them that they can be saved. Also know this, that your sins cannot separate you from the love of God, even though you're accountable for your sin. So people, we get in all these big discussions, don't we, about the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man and where do we draw the line and what do we do about these things? How do we bring together God's sovereignty and man's freedom? And we have big, long discussions. It's my favorite class when I get to teach theology. It's the easiest class. I always tell people I just pick a fight. 
Everybody starts fighting, and I go down to Starbucks and have a cup of coffee and go on over to Panda Express and have dinner and come back, and they're still fighting. And it's like, all right, class is over, you go home. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. Not much, I still pick a fight. I do do that. Let me give you the, the biblical resolution. You ready? Biblical authors have no problem with that tension. They have no problem saying that God did, that God, this was the predetermined plan of God, and you killed him. And they don't bother explaining it. New Testament authors have no problem with the tension. Not one bit. I've been studying for my uh, church history class this week, and we'll be talking about um, uh, John Calvin's theology. Uh, that will be part of it. And so I've been reading a lot of uh, John Calvin's Institutes of the, of the Christian Faith, which is just an amazing, amazing uh, book that everybody should really read, all four volumes. But it's really amazing. But one of the things that Calvin does is he takes things, and he'll even say this, I take things as far as the Scripture will leave us, will let us go, and then if I can't explain it further, I don't. So I take God's sovereignty all the way to what Scripture allows me to take it, and then I leave it. And then he does what the biblical authors do. He concludes with doxology. He ends up at a point where I don't know how else to, how, I do not know how to bring together God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and freedom, and so I don't. All I do is I bow my knee and give praise to God, to the God in heaven. And that's what the biblical authors do. The classic example, again, when you're in our Romans class, you, you knew this because in Romans 11, what is Paul talking about in Romans 9 through 11? This very difficult concept of um, human freedom and God's sovereignty in election. And how does, God, how does Paul end that very, very difficult doctrine? Let me quote for you. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be, be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Biblical authors don't seem to have a problem with these two issues. And so I'm just going to leave it there. Neither should we. Does that mean we can explain it? I, I don't know why we... Let me put, suggest this. Perhaps we should allow for a little mystery. The Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, has no problem with mystery. But the Western Church, Western Protestants especially, we all think that we've got to tie everything up in a neat little bow and be able to explain it and package it and say, here is God neatly explained and packaged. And, and in some ways, there are some areas we can do that. But we should not be surprised if we do not grasp the entirety of an infinite God and leave it to mystery. And say, I, I don't know. I do know that this was the definite plan of God. And that these men were responsible for crucifying Christ. And Peter doesn't seem to have a problem with it. He doesn't say, well, let me try to explain how this all fits together. Calls on them to be saved. I think that's the beauty of salvation. To not only see the beauty of Christ, but the horror of sin. When we see the ugliness of what our sin has done, and the beauty of Christ, and know that his grace is sufficient, I believe it causes us to be undone and say, like, like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. So, since the New Testament authors don't seem to have a problem with it, I'm not going to have a problem with it. I'm just going to say, here it is. God is sovereign and utterly in control and put forth Christ, either delivered him up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you men put him to death, and you are guilty of that. You crucified the Lord of glory. You will be held accountable for your sins. So, this section of text begins with this Jesus, 
you crucified and killed, but God raised him up. You crucified and killed him, but God raised him up. And then he goes on and says, because loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's an amazing statement. It was not possible for death to hold him. God loosed the pains of death. It was impossible for death to hold him. We might say, why was it impossible for death to hold him? Why? Because death is a consequence of sin. And Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, had no sin. That's why it's impossible for death to hold him. His resurrection is proof of his innocence. You might say this is further attestation by God that Jesus is um, Savior of the world. And so, we could put it this way. The death sentence was passed by a human court and then overturned by a higher court. The death sentence was passed by a human court. But it was overturned by a heavenly court. You put him to death. God overturned that sentence and raised him up to life because sin could not hold him. And we should note this. If his suffering and death were by the definite plan of God, so also was his resurrection and glory. This was always God's plan. That Christ would die for the sins of you and me, be raised to glory, be seated at the right hand of the Father. Folks, your righteousness, your your salvation is outside of you. People would call this an alien righteousness. But it is it's alien to you. It's outside of you. It's not part of you. And so, when we ask the question, what must I do to be saved? We need to first begin with this. Who can save you? I think Peter has given us a great idea. So I'll say this in conclusion. <clears throat> I'll repeat as Peter did earlier in his sermon. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then the next question is this. Who is the Lord? Peter responds to that question. This Jesus. This Jesus who was put forth by God as the sinless substitute for sin, who paid perfectly for our transgressions, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is alive forevermore. And we will ask the question, who will save me? This Jesus. This Jesus, the one whom God put forth as Messiah, whom God... um, by his definite plan, through the acts of sinful man, put to death on a cross and raised him up because he was without sin, is now seated at the right-hand side of God. What must I do to be saved? You need to know who it is who saves you. It is this Jesus who saves you. And having saved you, what must I do then to be saved? Repent and believe in the gospel. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, we come before you this morning. We